Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1975 Peter Weir film Picnic at Hanging Rock. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Barrett, we have returned to 1975, a great year in movies that keeps getting better. I think this is our fifth movie from that year. So we talked about The Man Who Would Be King. We talked about The Best Picture, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We <laughs> talked about Jaws. We talked about Gene Dealman. And now we're talking about Hanging Rock. So if 1960 was a big year for film, 1975 has, uh, has a lot going for it as well. Yeah. Uh, coincidental, I wasn't really thinking about this at 75. Um in part because the film didn't get a wide release in the U.S. until until after '79, after the last wave. So, um, this is our third Peter Weir film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we've talked about him a few times. I'm curious, what is your history with this film? Because this seems to be the film. His kind of it's not his first film, but it's sort of his breakthrough in some ways. Yeah. Um, and and it sounds like like kind of the the breakthrough for the Australian new wave. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's kind of his signature film. Some people consider it the greatest Australian film. Um, yeah, it's a good question, Sam. I mean, I remember it was a film I was aware of for a long time, and I've seen it a couple of times. I saw it oh, probably back um, when I was in college, and then again maybe about 15, 20 years later. But I, I don't remember when it first came into my mind uh, or to my attention. I suspect it's one of those, it's sort of like Persona, that I saw a poster for it, and it just kind of haunted me a little bit. It's funny you say that, because that is my feel. I mean, this is the first time I saw this film was this week, but when we, the first weird film we did was Fearless, and that was pretty early on in the podcast. That's from 1993. Um, and I'd seen other American Peter Weir movies. and But when we did that, I remember reading every, they kept referencing Picnic at Hanging Rock, and it sounded haunting and great. And it's like, I, I really want to see that. And I just never got around to it. So um, so I was very excited uh, to watch this. Um, it is interesting because I think on the first and second uh, weird movies, we we talked about Fearless in the Last Wave. I remember asking you, like, so what is what is a Peter Weir film? And I was like, I don't necessarily see the connections after watching this. Not only do I see the connections to the two we've watched, but to his other films as well. I feel like now I'm starting to see some thematic things that are connecting some of these uh, to a degree. Um, I feel like I'm understanding him a little better Um, at one level, this and um, the, the last wave, I think have a lot in common. Um, they're both set in Australia and they both have a, uh, are pretty explicit about, you know, you have the, the British European colonizers experiencing something much older in the natural world or, Mm -hmm. or, or an older culture. Um, the last wave is kind of a cross between those things. Um, this feels like it's more encountering the, uh, primal power of the natural world in australia and 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 those two things clashing and it's like so watching this in the last wave together like these seem like um pieces that that fit together you know there's there's a sense in which um i think it's absolutely true and there's there's a sense in which you could draw analogies between uh we and hitchcock uh, in terms of just as hitchcock had his british period and then his american period and we had his Australian period and then his American period. And in each case, the American period is the longer one and the one for which maybe they are um, most well known. Um, 
But unlike Hitchcock, well, maybe I, maybe like Hitchcock, but I, but I think there are continuities between what Weir did in Australia and what he does later in in uh, in Hollywood. And I think that Fearless is a good example because you know Fear, Fearless, as as you recall, is very much about the the inner life of the character played by Jeff Bridges. And Weir is really one of those directors who's very interested in the in the inner life and almost. Again, I'll make one of my classic connections to David Lynch. He's not a Lynchian director in terms of his style, but he's a Lynchian director in terms of his interest in those parts of our of our identity that are mysterious. The, the parts that are connected with dream, the parts that are connected with unconscious, the parts that are connected with, um, uh, there's almost a spiritual sense of, of a reality that is not easily understandable by the rational mind. And I think you get that very strongly in Fearless, and you get it very strongly in the Australian films as well. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I I agree with you. I like I almost wrote Lynch's name down, but I was like, but it's not what Lynch is doing. But you're right. There's something about when even when I was writing notes for this, like with Lynch films, I found myself more than any other filmmaker just writing questions like, why did this happen? And 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 I believe it's all intent or or an openness to it. But there's all this movie is the more you think about it, the more things you think isn't that strange that this mm-hmm. thing happened and it doesn't seem unbelievable, but it just seems like I don't exactly understand why this happened or what happened as a result of this. Um, and and it, it leaves you with a movie that haunts you in a way. And I think Lynch movies do that as well, where, where there's something unsettling about the fact that famously this movie, the, the, the big central question doesn't get resolved, but there's a lot of other things unresolved in this movie when you get to the end and you say, well, what was it? What was going on here and here? And, and I, and like, um, I found that so satisfying in this movie. Well, I, th- I think the strangeness starts from the very beginning. I, I, I think, I mean, I mean, e- e- even in the context of the structure of this, you know, this girl's college, and you know the headmistress stands up there and she says, "Okay, you're going off to a picnic now. Watch out! There's ants, there's venomous snakes." And it's like, so, so why are you sending them off on a picnic if this is what the kind of place they're going to? So it's like from the very get go, there's a there's a mystery around why anybody is doing anything in this in in, in this film. It's like, what, what motivates her to send them off on this on this picnic? And when they get there, it doesn't seem to be much about the picnic at all. Um, so anyway, it's it's, right. it's very odd from the get go. Yeah, and I would say in terms of thinking about Weir, like you know, uh, my probably my favorite Peter Weir movie, and this is just because of the age I am. Is I love I was like twelve years old when Dead Poet Society came uh-huh. out, so I love that movie. And and I think I was like, so I, I always whenever I watch we watch Weir movies, I'm like, well, what does Dead Poet Society have to do with this? And I look at this and. That actually, this actually pairs interestingly with that as well, because again, you have a boarding school, you have young people in a boarding school. This is women instead of men, and fitting that theme of like kind of a a strict uh, American or European Western sort of idea about what who you're supposed to be, mm-hmm. and and all of whether it's whether it's this or the Last Wave or Fearless or Dead Poet Society, or you could think of the Truman Show, mm-hmm. people who have a particular idea about what their what life is and what they're supposed to be encountering something that unsettles that so Mm -hmm. in the last wave it's sort of the like the aboriginal culture and the the again like the kind of primal forces of australia um in uh in fearless it's the divine in a certain degree or maybe questions about that 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in Dead Poets, it, I mean, it is romantic poetry and art for a generation where that stuff was sort of extinguished, mm-hmm. you know, and they were told to focus on these other things. And and you get this person bringing something out of his uh, out of the students. And in Hanging Rock, it, it is again this sort of power of the natural world, and um, and I think the nature in certain things that that uh, colonial European culture is clearly trying to suppress. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, another way to think about it is suppression versus nature. Like, like the the intent to want to suppress things, and then the power of nature and those things at uh, at odds with each other. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I I think that's that's very much at the heart of this film. Um, you know, uh, Sam, I think you know one of the striking images is towards the beginning, as the girls are tightening each other's corsets. And you get that line of girls, you know, each one restraining the other. And the sense that nature represents um, a kind of freedom, but it also represents a kind of threat. It represents power, but it also represents uh, something that's kind of foreboding. And so there's this this sense that um, it's it's difficult to figure out what the what the middle state of being a human being would look like, because it looks like you've either got this repressed, tightened down um everything is sort of under control versus this sense of of abandonment you know when they talk about uh the glimpse of miss mccraw going up the going up the rock without her dress on she's just wearing her underwear it's like what it's like so that's the opposite of the miss mccraw that you see sitting in her chair looking at her geometry text so it's so it's almost as though you don't get to exist in between it's like you've got these two kind of extreme states of what it means uh, to 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 be a human being that kind of get get played out. I suppose you could say the police are sort of in the middle in a way, but but the the police don't have any idea what's going on. I mean, they're in the middle, but they're not in contact with either end, really. Right, and and there there is this constant theme that this the, the whatever the 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 sort of natural power is, or or natural inclinations are there just below the surface. So there is something um, so interesting about the way Miss McCraw describes hanging rock and where it comes from mm-hmm. you know where mm-hmm. she talks about this sure. you know this the these the, this lava underneath the earth just waiting to exp- you know waiting to explode waiting to happen and um i mean there's something sexual about the way she describes that yes. you know very, very clearly and then when you get um michael talking to albert and 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 albert said you know and they're looking at the girls crossing the river and michael says don't say crude things and he says i say them you you think them i'm the one who says them so he's like these things are in you too you know like i'm just i'm just it's just on the outside for me you know in the same way hanging rock is this part of nature that is on the outside instead of bubbling underneath well and then this recall also represents that um Another way in which uh, humanity tries to tame nature, right, and that is by imposing or using scientific explanations. So you're right; you've got the the, the you know, sexual imagery of the rock, but then you have this, you know, careful description of how many millions of years ago this happened. Um, and then I love the shot where she's sitting in the chair and she looks up at hanging rock, and then she looks back down at the geometry text, which has the angles on it. And it's almost like, oh, I, it's almost like she's using the geometry as a way to try to understand what she's looking at. But, mm-hmm. but, but so many shots it. of, 
Yeah, so so many other shots of the rock, of course, you know, make you know, give it eyes and a mouth and make it look, and and that's very different from looking at a geometry diagram. And so I just love the way Weir sets up that kind of tension between what is it that we're looking at or what is it that's looking at us. Yes, absolutely, and I love. Um, I want to get to the 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 very start of this movie. You talked about the start. You know, why are they going to Hanging Rock? But this movie has three different. Um, three different ways it introduces itself before the story starts. And I think they're all very interesting. So the first thing we get is um, this title card, mm-hmm. right? Which, which basically tells you what's going to happen, which is interesting because unlike, I mean, we've talked, we've been watching this series of vanishing movies. And when you get a title, like the lady vanishes or the vanishing, like, you know, what's going to happen when you get a title, like picnic at hanging rock, at least for non-Australians, you don't know what that's going to be about. Now, this is a really popular book in Australia. So I'm guessing most people know a lot of people know the basics of the story. Um, but, but the title card tells you what's going to happen. It says these people, these, uh, four people disappeared and, there was no trace of them. So before anything happens, you're told that. But it has the power. And and on one of the Criterion special features, one of the producers talked about why they put that title card on there. Because it has the power of making you feel like this is real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though they never say it's real. It right, just, right. It's, but yeah. it's stated in this kind of like feeling like you're reading this in a history book. So it's like, well, and it, it what it reminded me of, and the, and they're more explicit in this, um, is in Fargo when when it, they just have the title card that says this is a true story, <laughs> even though it's not. But like, but that changes the way you look at it, and it changes the fact of like, I don't care that I already know what's going to happen because you because of the way you set it up. I'm now I'm watching it differently because I'm trying to think about this as a real event, and apparently this was the same with the book that. You know, the book is a novel, but there's all this kind of mystery around, like, did something happen at Hanging Rock? Is this based on something real? And people kind of scouring through historical records to try to find it, and nothing can be found, but there's this persistent sense that, like, something like this happened. And it's in that, and that sort of legend has a kind of power. And I feel like even without coming from that culture, uh, from Australia in the 60s and 70s, it's still works reading that title card because i had this instant moment of like is this a real story and then it makes you think about what does it mean to be true <laughs> right well the title and the title card does something else very important sam and that is um the audience has to understand from the beginning that this is a mystery without an answer and not to be frustrated about that you know, it's because, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than saying, oh, that was, you know, that film didn't answer the question or that was an unsatisfying answer to the question. And, and you know, and I've watched other films that don't resolve at the at the end. Um, uh, there's a there's a really interesting John Sayles film called Limbo, um, which literally just stops and you're like, OK, what happens next? And 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 that's a case where um it's kind of like a lady or the tiger ending uh, for the audience. Um, and that's one way to handle it. This film is different. This film is, there's not an answer because there's not an answer. And and that's what the film wants you to play with, right? Mm-hmm. The, the film wants you to play with the idea that there are mysteries that actually have no answers to them. And even though, even though the film gives you a few things to speculate on, 
there's nothing i mean i i never for a moment thought anybody took these girls away i never thought for a moment they were attacked or they were you know or, or, or they just didn't seem physically possible given the circumstances so then you would say well then barrett what did happen to them i don't know it's inexplicable something inexplicable happened to them and 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 that's what the film wants you to live with the idea that there just isn't going to be an answer to this. And that's what you have to understand because it tells you something about the nature of reality. Reality is ultimately unknowable uh, to the degree that we think it's knowable. It's not. Right. And, and to the degree to we that we think we can uh, uh, impose a kind of reason or rationale, there's going to be things that don't make sense. Well, which is, which is an interesting contrast with the vanishing, Right. Okay, you want to know what happened? Here's what happened, and the and the, the truth kills you. Um, so so sometimes, I mean, I, I given my choices, would I rather would I rather have the end of the vanishing or the end of this film? I'll take the end of this film <laughs> any, right. any any day. Yeah, and what's interesting is so what we watched, I believe, is the Peter Weir director's cut. I think that's the only thing yes. that you can kind yes. of see because the original cut is about seven minutes longer. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at some point, Weir, Weir in his director's cut actually makes it shorter. And he does it for the ex- uh, exact purposes you're saying, which is like he kind of wanted it, wanted to take away things that, that, felt like theories of like mm-hmm. well maybe it was so like like watching this michael do michael and albert having done something doesn't even feel like a theory in this and, and but apparently maybe in if those extra seven minutes you saw a little bit more of them that makes you wonder something more mm-hmm. like like um they're they just seem like observers who've seen too much and ha- and also have these experiences on the rock rather than suspects Mm-hmm. And there's, this is like a, it's a, it's a, a disappearance or, or murder or however you want to think about it without sus, there are no suspects. There's not a, well, I wonder, even in, even in La Ventura, you have the, well, was there that other boat? Like you, like you have this thing of like, that can, this just doesn't make sense. And especially like you look at all these people exploring hanging rock, which is big, but doesn't seem that big. And mm-hmm. it's like, why can they find nothing? <laughs> Something, ha- you know, like I, I find that very powerful. Well, it, it's it's interesting you bring up La Ventura because, and and that gets me thinking about. So, so what is the difference? Because in La Ventura, you you know you have a few more plausible theories. You know there is that boat that people heard, and and but La Ventura doesn't doesn't suggest that there's something fundamentally mysterious about the world. You know, we talked about La Ventura as a world that's it's kind of godless. Uh, and it's kind of it's empty. It's empty spiritually. It's about it's about exploring the lives of people who really have no inner life. And even though you could say that the islands are the Mediterranean equivalent of hanging rock, they just I don't know. They, they just strike me as barren. They they don't strike me as having a presence the way hanging rock does. Well, exactly so because Antonioni's world is is devoid of mystery even though right. it was all about a mystery. And if, if Antonioni had wanted to turn La Ventura into hanging rock, the mysterious thing wouldn't be the islands. It would be the sea because mm-hmm. the sea is the infinite like maw that can swallow anything up. You know, that's the thing that has that kind of primal power. Like it's not, 
it's it's not those volcanic islands you know so and 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 that's presented as a possibility that if she committed suicide she there's a chance that you never see that body again like there's way you know so so like so there's rational explanations where that's the thing with the fact that they disappear up a mountain because it's like mm-hmm. well they have to be there then right mm-hmm. and and like like that's the that's the thing that's so maddening about it is is it feels like like there has to be some trace of them or they have to be there or their remains have to be there and then the other maddening part is like why does Irma come back right like where was she when they were searching before yeah right no that that yeah i, I mean that that's why um it has the overtones of an alien abduction uh mm-hmm. plot right you know the aliens have taken this person away and then the person has popped back and sometimes they have memories and sometimes they don't and it's almost like you know it's almost like irma was absorbed and then spat back out again um and and it's interesting that you know, he teases you with her with the possibility of an explanation. Oh, oh, so we found somebody. Now we're going to know what happened. But that person has no idea, has no idea what happened. So he kind of, you know, one of his challenges in the in the larger part of the film after the girls disappear, one of the challenges he faced was, you know, how do I keep how do I keep the audience interested? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was really afraid that the movie was going to kind of fall apart, although it, this is the way it was structured. So I think having Irma in there is a little bit of a you know, it's a little bit of a tease, but again, it doesn't, not only does it not take us closer, in some ways it actually functions to, to take us farther away. Why does Irma come back? Why don't the other three come back? Why does she come back at all? Why don't two come back? Why don't three come back? It just multiplies the questions you end up asking. Absolutely. And and then in that scene where when, when Irma is finally back to health and visits the school and the girls accost her it's one of the great horror scenes in this movie yes. we didn't really talk about genre but this is a this seems like a period drama punctuated with some horror scenes and then a slow burn of horror as you keep thinking about it um, yeah, it's like you know the the only thing in some ways the only thing worse than being a victim is being a survivor mm-hmm and and she's she's a survivor in a way that Edith is not, right? Because you know Edith represents that kind of rational resistance to what's to what's going on. It almost suggests that it's 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 not only that there's a supernatural force, but there there needs to be a willingness to cooperate with 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 supernatural force. So you know the three girls who go up and leave Edith behind. It's almost like Edith is re- somebody resistant to hypnotism resistant to participating in a seance, you know, resistance, resistant to any suggestion that, that there's something beyond the kind of beyond the veil. So, so she doesn't come in for the kind of treatment that that Irma does. So it's almost as though Irma has done something wrong by coming back and not being able to report uh, on the others. And of course she's dressed in that blood red mm-hmm. outfit. It's like, I mean, it, it's, it, yeah. It, and it's, it, it's actually, there's, there's almost nothing more terrifying than a group of adolescents uh, attacking somebody, and and as they all stood there with the with the with the bar and they're start, and they kind of start rhythmically swinging it. It's you're right. It's it's a classic kind of horror film moment. And and he puts he he challenges you because what you want is what those girls want. Yeah. You want you so like he's so he's saying are you them? Are you or, or and, and 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 is 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 Peter Weir or Joan Lindsay the author of this is she Irma where it's like mm. yeah, we're telling you this story but we don't it's not like we're not withholding something. We don't know what happened. 
you know, like, like, like that, there is not an explanation that I know that you don't know. I mean, that was my impression from, uh, the interview clips I saw with Weir and with Joan Lindsay is it's Mm. not like, well, secretly I know, but I'm not going to tell you. It's just like, no, like this is a story where something happened and it cannot be explained. And, and so like, he's sort of challenging you to say, are you where, who are you in this scene? That and, and 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 that again is the the Lynchian element of both the novel and and the film because Joan Lindsay talked about she had a series of dreams that kind of she said that's what inspired the book. Now there's still this sense of was there something autobiographical about it as well? But that's exactly the way um, Lynch talks about you know, landing the big fish. She talks about you know you kind of make yourself receptive and you get these messages out of the ether, and it's almost like. It's almost like she channeled this story. So, you know, when she's out, I love the part where in, in, in that interview where Weir says that when he went to see her, he, he asked her the one question he was told not to ask, right? He asks her, you know, is this is this in fact a true, a true story? And she says, young man, you know, never ask me that, that again. Um, but it's a sense that, you know, maybe she's not even sure herself, but all she knows is that it's gripped her the way a true story would, whether it connects to something in her life or not. So again, I think that there, you know, the it's again that notion that dreams both inspire reality and dreams maybe reveal something about reality. And there's a sense that um there's there, there's a there's a life that we live in dreams that we uh, underestimate at times. Okay, so since you said that, I want to jump to I want to jump over the second introduction and get to the third one, which is Miranda's opening line or quote mm. from sort of quote from Poe. What we see and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you've already invoked in, invoked dreams, so um, I'm gonna I'm going to lean on the literature professor here. Uh, tell me about that as as the opening lines of the movie. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it as you said, it's a, it's a quote from a from a from a uh, poem by Edgar Edgar Allan Poe. The exact quote is, "All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream," and. Actually, when when I heard that line, I thought instantly of Shakespeare's uh, Tempest, and um, we are but stuff as dreams are, are are made on, right? This 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 notion that um, we we are we think we are a reality, but in fact, and it makes it, we, in fact we may be a dream. It makes me think of Alice in Wonderland and the, uh, the 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 dreaming king, and if he wakes up, we're all gonna we're all gonna disappear, right? So yeah, that's it's 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 this whole notion that. Dreams are um, an alternate reality, and maybe, in fact, what we think is reality is, in fact, but a dream. Yeah, and and and, and then it and then it introduces Miranda, who is um, not unlike the Vanishing, is the central character, even though she um, exits the movie about halfway through. But but she is the the centerpiece of the of of um, the movie in terms of how a number of the characters are haunted by her or, or, or dream on her is maybe a way to think about it. I mean, there's, there's, there's multiple explanation, not explanations, multiple, maybe um, metaphors for Miranda, uh, visual metaphors or, or things like this. You get the, she's a Botticelli angel. She's this for Michael. She's this swan, this swan imagery. Um, keeps coming up. Um, we're told by, I mean, Sarah is the most interesting one of these, right? That we're told by Sarah that uh, Miranda knows things that other people don't. Um, 
And of course, you know, she's Miranda is Prospero's daughter in, in the Tempest. And it's it's Miranda who um, in the in the in the play, it's 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 Miranda who talks about this brave new world that has such creatures in it. And so I think it's very a very deliberate naming of that character to connect her with that kind of um that kind of uh, visionary view of the world that sees things fresh or sees things in a way that others don't necessarily see them. Um, the other major character in this movie that 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 we've talked around a little bit uh, is Hanging Rock itself. So the second introduction in this movie is one of the more amazing visuals, which apparently they almost they they got just because they happened to be in the right place at the right time, and it's. I was trying to figure out what it is. I think it's multiple shots from the same low. It's almost like time-lapse, but it's not time-lapse. It's, I think they have a shot that they had for a while from a a standard location that then they faded into another shot from that same location because you don't see the fog and mist move. You see it appear and disappear. Mm -hmm. So at one point you see hanging rockets, like the kind of in its totality, then you see it with the mist fog underneath it so it almost seems like it's floating or flying yeah. in the clouds and then you see it obscured by clouds and you see this the the nature below it it's really remarkable as a way to introduce hanging rock which to anybody who's not australian is not something you're necessarily aware of yeah it makes it yeah it makes yeah you're right it, it makes it seem like a uh kind of a sentient being uh which is one of the key themes right that uh, almost as though it's, it's emerging from the mist but at the same time the mist obscures exactly what it is mm-hmm. and what i found interesting is i don't know your first impressions but in the movie when they're riding to hanging rock and and uh mr hussey first points it out when they can see it my thought is oh this is not that remarkable it looks just <laughs> like a, a rocky hill um and it's in fact one of the producers in, in in one of the features talked about like when you first see hanging rock that's your impression is like i don't see what the big deal is but this movie does a great job of as you explore as as the the girls start to climb and explore this thing which seems like it's just another rocky big hill opens up in a kind of way and mm-hmm. also constricts in a kind of way like 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 it seems like it keeps getting bigger and higher it seems like they keep reaching a plateau where you feel like well now they've reached the top and then they keep walking up and it seems like it's like it opens up, but it also is this labyrinth that they're in. They do a great job of depicting why this thing is 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 fascinating and why it's scary. Well, I mean, that's the uh, and, and that's an interesting point about how it kind of keeps going because aside from that opening shot when the film begins, you never really get an establishing shot. Like you never you never really see where the girls are in terms of the larger context. The closest thing you have is there is a kind of a medium distance shot of the whole party, you know, before they start to break up. But that doesn't really show you who they are against the whole backdrop of the rock. And as the girls keep climbing, you really don't know exactly how high they're going or where they are in relation. So I think I think this, this, there is a sense that it's labyrinthian and, and you really aren't quite sure where you are at any any given time. So it really does become kind of a maze uh, as, as you trace them through. So, um, so after these intros, we get to we get to Applewood College, and we're not going to go through this movie beat by beat. Don't worry, because we're, we're we're jumping around. But, but um, I think you know, in at at, at excuse me, Apple Yard College, um, you know, we see the girls waking and preparing, and we we get this. 
I find the girls' uh, celebration of St. Valentine's Day to be very interesting. If we're talking mm-hmm. about this movie, you know, having this sort of um, repressed, uh, especially repressed female sexuality, right? The 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 corseting and all of you know. And when they're when they go to the rock, she says, you know, once you pass through town, you may take your gloves off. Yes. And there is this this sense, yeah. even when they're riding through town, that like that they're being looked at, it doesn't particularly feel threatening, but there is this sense that um, they've been taught that this is threatening maybe to a certain degree. And then there's this freedom when you move beyond that, move beyond the, the populated area to the natural world where, um, where, where, where they, they take that up. But there's something about the two moments when they sort of hail St. Valentine, which I've never seen somebody do on Valentine's day. Like they, first they have the, the statue at the breakfast they're mm-hmm. holding it up and then when she as the famous shot from the movie when she cuts the cake as if she's stabbing it yes um there is there is something that also feels like you have this um primal natural power you have this you know maybe repressed european colonial thing but then even within the european colonial thing it feels like there's this bubbling up of maybe this older the, these older uh, religious or even pagan practices that seem in in mm. embedded mm. in this or like the potential for this, which I find just like that imagery is really is really interesting. And there's so much um, where where love and sexuality feels like it's just about bubbling up, whether it's between. I mean, I mean, one of the opening things that happens, I think, if I'm reading what's happening correctly, is Sarah gives. Um, Miranda a Valentine with a love poem in it mm-hmm. um, and that becomes a theme that obviously runs through this yeah and and uh, and it's interesting that one of the other forms of repression is um, the repression of Sarah as a poet right when she mm-hmm. wants to recite her own poem but she's told no no you're not you're not going to do that so there's a, and of course Sarah becomes a tragic character because of that re- of, of that repression but I also want to pick up with something you said earlier about you know, there's a, almost the sense of um, maybe you didn't say it this way, Sam. What's what I heard? Of, there's almost a sense of a pagan ritual going on. Um, and one thing that I would that really contributes to that is the use of the panpipes uh, mm-hmm. on the soundtrack, right? That's a it's a very kind of um, well, panpipes are interesting, right? Because they're, they're associated with pan, um, and but they're also they're also a very natural sound, right? They're very bird-like in some ways. And so you get this kind of beautiful uh, panpipe music to accompany these scenes that in some ways, you know, we've, the, in some ways the film has told us this is going to be a horror film and there are some horror conventions, but then it uses this music and a lot of these visual elements that kind of put us in a different film world. And I think that's part of, that's part of Weir's strategy in telling us, well, yeah, there's something like a horror film going on here, but listen to that music and look at these soft images. And it's really, there's something else going on at, at the same time. So I think there is this notion of something uh, pre-Christian, something prehistoric uh, accompanying the action. Absolutely. And, and and I was thinking about the question of like, well, why do they go to Hanging Rock? Because I think you have to ask yourself that. Um, and, and you know, I wonder, is this, is this a way to... Um, to claim and tame the land is to be, you know, because I find it interesting. You also have the colonel and his wife and Albert even talks about how they get there. They get there early. They set up their chairs and they just sit there uh, and look at, he says, they don't even walk around. They don't, but, but, but there is this sense of like, we are here observing this and there, and there is this sense of kind of 
I wonder sort of laying claim to it. And, and maybe the fact that you send these girls from this girls college is a forced sense that this is not already, that this is all, excuse me, this is already tamed where we can send these, these young girls there, even though we know that it's dangerous because it's like, this is, this is symbolic of the fact that this is claim. This is claimed and we are claiming it is tamed, even though it is clearly not. And uh, yes, but I could also turn it around the other way and say at the same time, maybe it's hanging rock itself kind of drawing them in. Mm -hmm. They think they're going there because they've tamed it, but maybe they're being almost magnetically attracted to it in a way that they, they're not aware. And of course, we have that reference to magnetism and the uh, the stopped watches, which again is maybe one of those uh, horror horror conventions. Um, and of course, Miss McCraw has a scientific explanation for why the watches have stopped. But I mean, that's a classic way to suggest that wherever we are, um, we are sort of in a zone where the normal laws of physics and time may not necessarily uh, apply. And I think as the action unfolds, you really kind of lose all sense of time. How long have they been there? And exactly what's, you know, how much time has elapsed? It all becomes very uh, mysterious. Yeah. And, 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 and strange things start to happen when they're there. And apparently like the, the watch thing happened to people as they were filming it. And some of the things they at least claimed that like this also happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, so the, so there, maybe there are some, you know, magnetic properties or something mm -hmm. that, that throws those things off. Um, this is where I think the visuals of the movie are the richest and the best is when they're at hanging rock. And apparently they could only film for about an hour and a half a day because mm -hmm. the light was right then, but you, it, um, they seem like such intentionally made like uh, romantic tableaus of these like girls lounging and eating or reading, you know, in nature. I mean, if you if you just do a Google search for 19th century romantic painting, it looks like Picnic at Hanging Rock. And and I, I realized they were looking at Australian Impressionism. If you do a search for that, you also see a little bit different version of kind of the look that they were going for. But it is pretty remarkable that they're able to really kind of capture um capture those what those artistic movements looked like and you know mm -hmm. and even those where you have you have these people in nature which speaks to kind of the collision of those things and and um and you also get probably the best footage in this movie is watching the ants overtake the cake at the picnic <laughs> and there's this sense of like we have brought uh, you know, in quotes, civilization to to the to nature, but nature is also overtaking and reclaiming that, and and I that's just some pretty amazing footage, I think. Yeah, the uh, the cinematographer is Russell Boyd, and uh, he worked with Weir on a, on a lot of films, and uh, yeah, he he talks in again in that Criterion uh, extra, he talks about the various layers of um, sheer material that he was using to achieve that kind of soft soft focus effect. Um, the other thing we should talk about too, Sam, is that there's a lot of slow motion in the film. Um, some of it is obvious. There's at least a couple of moments when Miranda jumps across the stream, and then there's a scene where Michael walks across one of the openings in the, in the rock, and you can tell those are slow motion. But there's other times in the film where it's imperceptible. They've slowed the frame rate, but it's almost like it operates uh, on, on you as a viewer kind of subconsciously. So this is part of Weir's strategy, right? That you you create a film that, that first of all, it signals to audiences that, that you're in kind of two different genres simultaneously. 
but it also gives them it gives the audience very interesting things to look at so they don't necessarily think so much about the plot because they're very interested in how these characters are moving or how they're glancing or how the camera is focusing on them so i think that the cinematography is so much a part of the success of the film yeah and and weird pulled some of that off by um he said like when he would shoot Miranda in those scenes that he was going to slow down, he was like, if you don't blink, I can play this at any speed and people won't know because there's not an indicator of something <laughs> that you know the speed of. Mm-hmm. So as the girls start to go, you know, start to to explore the rock, which is yet another thing which they're explicitly told not to do. But the t- the the mademoiselle is just like, sure, go ahead. And, and you're thinking, Huh, seems like you were given instructions to not let them do this very (laughs) thing. Um, As they start to explore the rock and climb, they start to, you know, shed some of the strictures Mm -hmm. on them. So, like, they take off their shoes and socks, or at least three of them do. I mean, um, uh, Edith doesn't. Uh, We get these great shots of, like, Miranda kind of turning and looking up at the, the sky or at the rocks. You get Irma kind of almost like dancing or swaying again this also feels like um like a i mean all i can picture is like like a dionysian ritual or something mm-hmm. right where she seems like like the the in it the dance she's doing just feels like a um obviously not a structured thing but just like a embracing or flowing with nature you know and you also get this this is where the sound design is also remarkable when they're going up because you get this sort of like wind and rumble that's mm. that's just mm. underneath all yeah, of yeah. the you know all of them here and they start to do some other strange things the uh, character i find most interesting is marion mm. because she disappears does not come back and almost nobody talks about her they mm. talk about macraw they talk about miranda and it's like but marion also disappeared and and you know she's she's counted in the number but it but it's like so there's, there's almost extensive, like, why have the Marion character even there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but she has one of the strangest things where when they're pretty high up on the rock, she looks down and says, like, who are, what are those people doing down there? Who are they? And what she's looking at are her classmates. Yeah. yeah. And then she says, uh, you know, a surprising number of people are without purpose, though it's probable that they are performing some function unknown to themselves. <laughs> And it, and it's like so that it, it's one of the few lines I feel like she has in the movie, but it's like she's clearly like like something is happening to them and to her where she doesn't even recognize in some ways she doesn't recognize who she is because she is them that mm-hmm. she's looking at. So there is this sense that as they're going up, they're they're also losing their connection to those things uh, t- to where they came from. Yeah, you're right, Sam. It's yeah, and I and I can't remember at what point. I think it's a little bit earlier, but Miranda also has a kind of oracular pronouncement, right? She says everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place. It's immediately after after. after, after okay. yeah, yeah, and 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 so yeah, it, it's all yeah, it's almost like they are being lifted into another realm, and. And in that, so, so, which also raises an, another really interesting question, which is, um, so is their disappearance a good or a bad thing? You know, I mean, you know, when, when Irma comes back, I mean, she's, you know, she's obviously been through a traumatic experience, but it's not clear that she's harmed in any particular way. I mean, she's obviously physically needs time to recover, but 
you know, I mean, okay, so what does it mean to be transfigured? I mean, I mean, you know, what is happening to them? What maybe it's a maybe it's a good thing, and maybe somehow Irma was rejected by whatever it is that accepts the other three. That's one more mystery, right? We we think that the disappearance has to mean something bad. Maybe maybe it means something good. Maybe it means some kind of transition to a higher state. We 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 just don't know. Right. Uh, but Miranda gives it this wonderful gloss. It's like whatever is happening, this what it's supposed to happen at this time and place, which is why we are on this picnic, because the people who took us here may have thought we were coming for one reason, but maybe there was another cosmic force at work that brought us here for a different reason. Right. And you think about like like how prophetic those words sound when they're up there. And think about one of the first things we hear Miranda say to Sarah you know, is oh. you, you're going to need to learn to love someone else because I won't be here that long. And you can read that as I won't be mm -hmm. at school that long. Or once you get to this part, you're like, well, may, I mean, does, does she have an awareness of, of, I mean, if, if, if Sarah's right, that Miranda knows things, other people don't, does she understand something about the meaning of life and existence? And yeah, like, like you're right. I, I think your question is a great one, which didn't occur to me, which is maybe, is it possible that this is a good, this is a good thing that that they're that's happening to them? That's that's because it's never treated that way in the movie. No, no, and 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 to be fair, you know, the all the, the all the tropes in the film point to something awful. Um, and I'm thinking about the fact when the girls are sleeping on the rock, and there's that lizard that yeah. comes crawling up in in, bet in between them. I mean. You know, even if even if you like lizards, lizards in films and snakes are almost never harbingers of, of anything good. So I think I'm reading the film against the grain by saying that. But at the same time, um, I think the film allows you to at least ask that question. I think any film that that makes you ask that many questions. Yes, <laughs> that, that, that question is allowed uh, to your point. Another strange things that happens and maybe I just don't understand 19th uh, people, you know, around the, the end of the 19th century is everybody just takes a nap. Then the girls at the top of the rock, take a nap, the girls below the rock, everybody's napping in this place, which is, I would be, I would be afraid to sit down there and they're <laughs> laying and falling asleep. And it's like, that also is just strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange, but I, I also think it connects very much with your earlier insight, Sam, which is we have domesticated this place. Mm -hmm. So it may look threatening. There may be ants and snakes, but we, you know, we, we, that doesn't bother us. We're in control here. So we, we don't have a ton of time. So we've gotten to the disappearance, which is about halfway through the film. The rest of the movie is just about people dealing with the questions that this raises. And I have two and a half pages of questions, so we're not going to be able to do all that. I'm curious, <laughs> what are the questions that are most interesting to you as this plays out, as the story plays out? Well, I guess I guess what's well, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me, and, and they're sort of connecting plot and character. And that is what what does the drama back at the college have to do with what's happening at the rock, right? So um I spent quite a bit of time thinking about, you know, how do you connect Sarah's story uh, to the the girls? And obviously the connection is through Albert uh, and you get this really, this really sad sense of, of a connection missed. Right. So, so you, you get, you get that with Sarah and then you get the, the whole drama with um, the way that this incident ultimately brings the school down. So, you know, so so on the one hand, you have this, you know, 
the the mystery of the pic of of the disappearance. But then you have this very kind of real world consequence of what's happened. So it's interesting to me to watch Weir kind of structure the film in a way like, well, how can I keep it going when I know that the only I can't explore only the disappearance because you can only watch people search the rock for so long. And so he takes it into really interesting directions by kind of going back to the school, going back to Sarah's story and think about this. This is where I would, this is how I got my idea, Sam, about maybe their disappearance isn't so bad because would you rather be Miranda or Sarah? Right. You know, would you rather jump out a window and, and crash through a greenhouse and, and die? Or would you rather deliquest or whatever it is happens to her? So that's, what's interesting to me. It's interesting how, how we are plays and of course you know what we find out that happens to at the, at the end to the headmistress which almost gets kind of thrown in there but it's like oh so even she is not immune to the power of the rock whatever that means well and okay i was thinking about my to me my most interesting character is apple yard i think she is fascinating um what is the origins of her animosity towards sarah yeah. So let's think about, you talked about the the missed opportunity. Like if Sarah is allowed to go on the picnic, she's one of the girls who's walking there. Albert sees her and Albert potentially recognizes his sister. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but, but so she has animosity from the very beginning, which we get little pieces of, but she's, we're also told there's multiple students who don't have their bills paid, but she seems to direct her ire particularly towards Sarah, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't exactly know. I mean, we can speculate, but like it's not explicitly clear why that is. Um, and then you get the end with Sarah, and Appleyard clearly lies to Mademoiselle about what happened to Sarah because she mm-hmm. says, Oh, her, you know, yeah. her guardian came and picked her up, Mr. Cosgrove, and they left right away, and he was in a hurry, which is absolutely not true to the because sarah's de- there dead so it's not like she couldn't have been mistaken that she thought cosgrove no, took her. No. so that's really interesting and then the scene at the towards the very end when mademoiselle and Appleyard are eating together uh, and she starts to talk about macraw and I, I wrote i wrote down what she said because it's very interesting to me she says i came to depend so much on greta macraw so much masculine intellect. Mm-hmm. I came to rely on that woman. Trust her. How could she allow herself to be spirited away, lost, raped, murdered in cold blood like a silly schoolgirl on that wretched hanging rock? Um, for one thing, this is the first time that rape is explicitly mentioned. It's mm-hmm. mentioned throughout the movie. I mean, the doctor keeps referring to the girls as intact. Intact. Yes. The police officer asked, "Was there a man?" Yeah. The the gardener seems to imply like. Uh, you know, we know what, pro- like, we know what we know when we say kidnapping, what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the first time she explicitly says that. And then when the gardener comes in after he discovers Sarah's body, we see Apple Yard in mourning clothes already. And, you know, you could say, well, that's for Sarah, or you could say that's for McCraw. And if this is a, if there is a love story potentially in, you know, the relationship between Sarah and towards Miranda is there something between Appleyard and Macraw in terms of mm-hmm. I mean just the, the even the the language of like you know depending on her masculine energy like like it's just, I just found that really fascinating and so then it's like why does she go to Hanging Rock well is she looking for Macraw is she looking mm-hmm. for this person when her world is crumbling that's her that's her rock is Macraw because she's so 
this mm-hmm. that's the thing that she's disappointed like the fact that she says the line murdered in cold blood like a silly schoolgirl as if silly schoolgirls deserve it but macraw should know better <laughs> it's really interesting I, I found that fascinating oh man uh, that, is, that is really interesting and of course um we know from the shot of sarah that sarah is has in effect been murdered in, in, in cold blood um, I also like the little indirection, right, where you see the carriage leaving. It almost as though you're supposed to believe maybe Sarah is actually on that, even though mm-hmm. he, you know she's not. And again, you know, we're just great at a couple, some of those horror tropes: the the, the carriage, the empty bed, um, the open window, um, which actually kind of comes up again in a Dead Poet Society. Um, you know, all all those to to signal what's going on with Sarah. Yeah, no, I this is a movie where again it has some like explicit horror things, but I think and this is maybe also if you know if we're if we're making a a, a slight Lynch attachment here, it I feel like it has a slow burn like a Lynch movie does too, mm-hmm. where it's like I can't quite get this thing out of my head and I keep thinking about it. Um in the way the best of Lynch like bores itself into your brain a little bit and it's like what about this though? What like like ex- basically your brain keeps saying resolve that thing that's unresolved and this movie does that too and it's less about what happened to the girls and more about all these other things which i think the second half of the movie the second time i watched it was so much more interesting because of that because yeah. i just i discovered a lot of those things it's almost yeah. like taking pleasure in being tickled uh which, yes which which i find no pleasure in but but maybe some people do so. right right do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie well just just to kind of make explicit what we've been saying sam and and, and that is that it's it's a film that is playing with different genres and there's a there's a very good commentary on it on the on the criterion uh disc by kristen thompson is very good very good critic and she talks about the way that uh, we've been talking about this a little bit, though, but the way that Weir uses some horror conventions, but then he actually creates an art film. So a lot of things we talked about, the, the soft focus, the slow motion, um, even even the soundtrack. Uh, we haven't talked about the superimpositions where Miranda looks up in the sky and you see the birds going one way and then, and then the other way. I mean, these are all things that tell you that this is not only one kind of, of film, which takes us back to Vagabond in a way, another film we enjoyed with multiple genres. And the other genre here, to get to the opening, one more opening unit uh, I don't think you mentioned was the title, maybe you did, the title card of Picnic the Hanging Rock, oh, which sure. looks like an ivory uh, merchant production. And it tells you, oh, we're going to get a staid historical drama. I just think Weir just juggles all these things. It's remarkable. It was only his second feature-length film. Um, he just juggles all these things so expertly. Yeah, and it seems it seems gutsy to do this because, you know, just like that title card ends with the uh, the ellipses, right? You have the three dots. Like this movie ends with just it's such an abrupt ending of like, and she was found dead, and nobody knows what happened have a great day but then like, but then but then but then you get but then you get the other classic art film ending which is the freeze frame mm-hmm. you get the freeze frame of miranda and of course yeah. you know we've seen freeze frames especially beginning with the with the Truffaut and the 400 blows as kind of a mark of the of the art film yes absolutely all right, Barrett, what do you have for us for two? We're taking a week off. So for in two weeks, what do you have for us? Well, um, I, I, I feel the need to stay in Australia and continue to explore the outback. So Nicholas Rogue's second film from 1971, Walkabout, um, which is really more of a European perspective, even though it's set in Australia. But I think it's an equally fascinating film in thinking about the power of the outback. 
Fantastic. I am very excited for this. In in watching this, there's a lot of references to, as people talk about the Australian New Wave, a lot of references to walk about. I'm very, very excited for this. Barrett, thank you so much for uh, putting this movie on our docket, for recommending this, and for having this conversation. If you got through this conver- if you got through this podcast and haven't watched this movie, go watch Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's fantastic. Um, so thank you for that. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about walkabout in the video store. Mm-hmm.